Welcome to Bible Greek VPod's Intermediate Greek Program. This is Lesson 16. In this lesson, you will learn the subjunctive mood, and then we will look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 24. First, let's look at the subjunctive mood. The subjunctive is the mood of possibility or potentiality, expressing the action as uncertain but probable. The word subjunctive comes to the English from the Latin subjunctiere, meaning to join on, attach, or subdue. In its simplest form, the subjunctive is translated with the word may or might. There are several uses of the subjunctive, and the first use is the deliberative subjunctive. The deliberative subjunctive asks either a real or rhetorical question. The deliberative is used to ask a question where the audience is expected to think about the answer. For example, when the speaker asks for guidance in Mark 6.37, it says, But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go? That's the deliberative subjunctive. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii of bread and give it to them to eat? An example of a rhetorical subjunctive is found in Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the deliberative subjunctive. That grace may abound. The next usage is the horatory subjunctive. A horatory subjunctive is used when the speaker seeks to exhort others to action. Since there is no first-person imperative, the first-person plural is used with the subjunctive and the result is like an imperative and is usually translated let us. An example is found in 1 John 3.18. Little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. The hortatory subjunctive is like an imperative. So it is, let us not love in word and in tongue, but in deed and truth. The next usage is the subjunctive of prohibition. To express a negative entreaty, or prohibition, the aorist subjunctive with the negative particle may is used. The force is equivalent to the imperative and usually is translated do not. An example is found in Revelation 22.10. It says this, And he said to me, Do not seal up. There's the subjunctive of prohibition. Do not seal up. The words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Next, there is the subjunctive of emphatic negation. When the speaker wants the strongest possible negation in Greek, the double negative idiom, ume, is used with the subjunctive and can be translated never or by no means. This has a special theological impact, as the following example illustrates. John chapter 10, verse 28. 
and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. There's that subjunctive of emphatic negation. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Another example is Matthew 24, verse 35. My words will never pass away. They will never pass away. That's the subjunctive of emphatic negation. The next usage is the subjunctive in clauses. The subjunctive is found in certain clauses in order to emphasize certain characteristics of the action. The first form is the purpose or result clause. The purpose clause expresses purpose of the main clause of the sentence, whereas the result clause expresses a result. A purpose clause and a result clause may be formed by use of the henna plus the subjunctive. An example of a purpose clause is found in Matthew 12, verse 10. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him? See, there it is. They might accuse him. There was a purpose to their questioning. An example of a result clause is found in John chapter 9, verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? That would be the result of the sin. The second type of clause has to do with a third class condition. A conditional sentence contains two parts. The first is the if clause. The second is the fulfillment, the then clause. The clause containing the supposition is called the protasis, the if part. It's the subordinate clause. The clause containing the statement based on the supposition is called the apodosis, the then. That's the main clause. The third class condition contains the conjunction ain with the subjunctive in the protasis and any mood or tense in the apodosis. The third class condition is the condition of certainty or probable future fulfillment based on the condition. We can find an example in John chapter 6, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats, that's the uh, third class condition, if anyone eats this bread, and then this would be the then, but they don't translate it then, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. A certainty is uh, meant by the third class condition. It will come to fruition. The next type of clause is the temporal clause. A temporal clause limits the action in relation to time. A temporal clause uses a temporal adverb plus the subjunctive. So examples are found in Matthew verses 5 and 11. Blessed are you when they revile you. There's the temporal clause. When they revile you. The adverb plus the subjunctive. And persecute you. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Another example is found in Mark chapter 13 verse 30. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until, there it is, the temporal clause, until all these things come to pass. The next clause is the relative clause. A relative clause expresses probable condition based on a generic subject. The relative clause is formed by the addition of a relative pronoun, has plus ein, or ein plus the subjunctive. This construction forms the wonderful familiar idiom, whoever, or whosoever, that we find in Scripture often. An example is found in John 4, verse 14. Whosoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. Now let's move on to our text for the day, and I hope you've gone to the website and got the detailed analysis and have those in front of you. So let's take a look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This section completes the previous section contrasting the spiritual condition and sin in the believer. The contrast between the deeds of the child of God and the child of the devil moves now to our example, our prime example, Jesus Christ in his life-giving work, that we would want to be treated as Jesus treated others. This section tells us that Jesus is our example. We must walk in word and deed as he commanded us, to love him and to love others. One of the distinctions of the Christian faith is that God sent His Son to die for His followers, whereas other faiths ask the follower to die for them. Christ does not ask us to die for Him. Instead, He commands us not to be indifferent to a believer when a desperate need is identified. We are commanded to give to a brother in need. Verse 16, By this we have known the love because that on behalf of us he placed his life. In contrast to the works of the devil, John describes laying down one's life for another. What a contrast. Agape love is not a demanding, selfish love as Cain's, but a giving love as Christ's love demonstrated by him giving his life. The reason is given as John introduces this section by the prepositional phrase in tuto, by this, identifying the method by which, that's the instrumental case, meaning by or means of, or instrument, uh, by means uh, which one knows brotherly love. How we treat one another reflects our love for the brethren and hence reflects our level of knowledge concerning love. How do we know love? We know love by Christ's example. Knowledge is in the perfect tense of ginosko, to learn or to know, to understand. And the object of this knowledge is love. Notice it is not a generic love, but a specific love, as the definite article is used much like eternal life is normally used with the definite article. It is Jesus' death on the cross for the world that demonstrates love. 
Jesus is our example of love. As it is said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. The perfect tense means they received and understood this love of God concerning his death for them, and they continue to know it. The conjunction hati is translated ep-exegetically as because, pointing out the reason, and the far demonstrative ekonos, that is often translated as the personal pronoun he, but might better read that one, as the farness of this demonstrative refers to Jesus' love as being far from our love. Even though we might lay down our life for another, we will never be a substitute for the sin of the world. For he alone bore the sin for all mankind on the cross. And this is something that only the Son of God, uh, God himself, can do. The nature of the substitutionary death of Christ in our place is highlighted by the expression on behalf of us. The preposition hupar, in behalf of or for the sake of means in place of notice 1 Timothy 2.6 Christ gave himself as a ransom that's the hoopor for all and Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for that's that hoopor again in place of for us the definite article is placed with the direct object making psyche, um, that's the uh, accusative feminine singular with the definite article life or soul, a particular life that has been substituted for us. And this substitution is a one-time event, as the aorist suggests, to set or to place. He died once for all. The next phrase, and we, we ought Two, for the sake of the brethren, to place the lives. See how clumsy that is? The English, most English translations are so much better than that. But that's, I want to make it uh, as, as literal as possible. This is not a good translation, uh, but it exp- it's meant to express the intent of the original language. The second phrase starts out emphatically as the personal pronoun in the nominative, nominative case is used with the verb quis ophelomen. The present tense of ophelo, present active indicative, first person plural, we owe or we ought to, expresses an indicative of obligation where the present tense means continuous action. The emphatic usage heightens the obligation and most translate we ought to in an ethical sense. The obligation rests upon us when danger requires it to willingly step in and lay down our lives for our brethren. The preposition hupar is again for the sake of, is implies substitution. Uh, we should substitute our lives for the brother. The controlling verb is the present infinitive of tithomai a setting or a placing the lives, the psyche. The Greek word psyche means heart, soul, mind, and denotes two aspects. 
The first aspect is the breath of life for the natural man. The second aspect in the Greek is the seat of personality. Christ came in the flesh. He lived and died as a man. The perfect representative of mankind as he died a human death. So it is that a man that possesses eternal life, zoe, that's not the word used here, but a person, a man that is possessed by eternal life, zoe, can never have zoe life taken away. But his breath of life, his psyche, can be taken. Most translate as we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Smoothing out and adding the pronoun our to make it readable in the English. But the Greek just uses the infinitive, laying down lives. The infinitive is a verbal noun, stresses the person we ought to be. Whereas with Christ, the verb is used and it stresses the fact of the act that was performed in the past. You get the difference? With Christ, it's a verb, a full-blown verb. That's his action. With us, it's the infinitive. It's the person we ought to be. The Greek is clear. This is not a command to lay down our lives, but we ought to be willing to do so. The concept revolutionizes the culture that teaches it. As we all hear about the husband that will take the bullet for his wife or the children. This is true love, agape love. A giving love where the brethren lay down their lives for one another because they possess eternal life and the Spirit of God. Listen to what Dr. Barnes says. So we speak of the patriot who sacrifices his life for the good of his country. So we feel in the case of a shipwreck that it may be the duty of a captain to sacrifice his life for the good of his passengers and crew. So in case of the pestilential disease a physician should not regard his own life if he may save others and so we always hold the man up to honor who is willing to jeopardize his own life and noble principles of self-denial for the good of his fellow men let's move on to verse 17 but whosoever has the life's resources of the world. I'm going to break there because it's, it's kind of a, a, a phrase that needs to be expanded. The relative pronoun hos with the particle ain and the subjunctive forms the, forms the indefinite relative clause and is normally translated as whosoever has. That is to say, this argument is a generic argument whose subject is anyone and serves as a general principle. This principle is introduced by the contrastive conjunction day, but serving to contrast the person of verse 16 who gives his life for the brethren with this person who has the possessions to give a brother in need and he looks the other way. This serves as a contrast of degrees. The verb echo present active subjunctive to have or to hold is a present subjunctive meaning if a person in general right now possesses the thing in need the object that is possessed is the Greek bios that by which life is sustained the resources 
the wealth or goods of the cosmos, of the world. This is a physical possession that is required to sustain life. A basic need such as food and clothing. The picture drawn here is of a person who has an immediate need to sustain his or her life and a believer who has the ability to provide and indeed possesses the necessary thing needed and he looks away. What a picture. On the one hand, Christ gave all he has. He laid down his life as a propitiation for the world, giving eternal life to those that believe. And on the other hand, a professing Christian who has plenty, yet ignores a brother with a genuine life-sustaining need. The next phrase. And he sees his brother having a need, and he shuts his intestines. In what way does the love of God dwell in him? This clause completes the indefinite relative clause and is introduced by the conjunction chi. The general principle continues with the subjunctive the arrow, the present active subjunctive, to be a spectator, to look at, or behold. He or she might see a fellow believer, is how you might translate that. The Adelphos, the brother in the metaphorical sense of a fellow believer in need. The personal pronoun autos, him, highlights the personal attachment that the one possessing has with the one in need. This is a brother. The verb used does not mean a casual glance, but a contemplative look to see fully the case at hand. Notice the object kara, necessity, a need, uh, is placed before the particle echo, to have or to hold, which is complementary to the main verb and is translated having. The participle matches the noun in case, thus tightly linking the need with a real current need that is, in this case, outwardly visible. This believer sees his fellow believer in a real visible need and he shuts down his gut. The use of the subjunctive continues throughout this illustration, but now the tense moves to the aorist, kleo, aorist active subjunctive, to shut or to shut up. As Dr. Robinson says, graphic slamming the door of his compassion. The metaphoric use means to shut out pity towards another. As the action of the verb in the aorist speaks of a timeless event or a one-time event in the past where the seed of afflictions are shut down. The words sprekanon, the bowels or the intestines, from uh, you hear the word spleen in there, where we get the English word spleen, is viewed metaphorically by the Hebrews as the seat of tender affections like kindness, compassion, and at times means heart. To the Greeks, however, the word metaphorically means the seat of passions, anger, and love. The use of the genitive personal pronoun atas moves to the English, resulting in the removal of the definite article and is translated just, and shuts up his intestines. What a picture we have here. A Christian who professes the love of Christ and yet possesses no pity, no sympathy, is a Christian that should examine himself. 
Call sin, sin, confess, and get right with God. John concludes this illustration by use of a rhetorical question. How? The pos. In what way does agape, does the love of God, remain in him? The main verb is now changed from the subjunctive to the indicative of the present verb minnow, to remain or to abide. How is the love of God remaining in him? The prepositional case moves from possession, the genitive, to location, the locative, in him. A person possessed by the Spirit of God should be moved by the Spirit to action, since it was by love that the child of God was born again. So it is agape love, a giving love, that characterizes the believer. The child should reflect the characteristic of the father. And abiding in Christ means the child of God will reflect agape love. Look at verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word and not in speech, but in deed and in truth. As is appropriate to the occasion, John uses the case of address directed to the technon, the little children, and used as a term of kindly address by teachers to their disciples. This address serves to relate the proper behavior of a child of God for a Christian must act according to what he or she believes. The fundamental law of human nature is that one will ultimately act out what one believes. Notice John adds the personal pronoun moi in the genitive, my little children, indicating a personal relationship of a father or teacher to his child or pupil. This is a command as the first person subjunctive is used for agape, a present active subjunctive, first person plural, to love. It is a horatory subjunctive with the first person plural the command is, let us not, may, love with word, the logos, in the instrumental case, with word and, actually he uses the meda, and not. <laughs> Enforce that not there, the negative. Glossa, tongue, uh, or language. But in deed and truth, a distinction is made between logos, a saying, and a glossa, what comes out of the mouth. A saying is a known statement of fact that is known and preached, whereas what comes out of the heart moves to the tongue. John says, don't just talk about it, do it. Notice what Jesus said. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bamboo bush. A good man out of good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. That defines a person pretty well. The use of the conjunction Allah, but, highlights the transition to the central matter, so it can be translated as yea. Further, 
restricting the command to the gospel's natural reaction. That is, the gospel naturally moves to action. The action spoken of is called ergon in the instrumental case, to work, a work or a deed, and it speaks of that which one is occupied with. The Christian should be occupied with the things of God. Foremost with the works of the Christian is the preaching of the gospel of truth. That's the great commission of Matthew 28. Truth is the Greek aletheia, and is what Christ is said to be. True love is a caring, giving love that comes from God. For Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and our love should reflect His life-giving love, since no one comes to the Father except through Him. For He alone is the door that knows His sheep, and His sheep will produce fruit because of the indwelling presence who teaches and tests and matures the believer. Look at the next verse. Verse 19. And in this we know that we are from the truth. The concept of truth is important to God. And the source of truth is centered in God's truth. The statement, all truth is God's truth, has been grossly misapplied. As only that truth that one finds in His Word can be defined as truth. There are those that try to apply this statement to everything that is true. 2 plus 2, for example. But the statement can only apply to spiritual truths found in the Bible. Man's truth is fallible and changeable. But God's Word stands forever. For He alone is infallible and unchangeable. His Word alone is true. The conjunction with the preposition and demonstrative served to highlight what was said before. That is, kai in tuto points to an abstract concept as the neuter demonstrative pronoun hutas. This is used. This phrase places importance upon the neuter work of verse 18, which is the outworking of the truth. The truth in this context is the command to love, and specifically, the love of the brethren, all those in your church, even those that are hard to love. The saying, by this we know, is a common saying in this letter. It's used six times. Chapter 2, verse 3, by this we know, we have known him, perfect tense, if we keep his commandments. By this we know, in verse 5 of chapter 2, we are in him. Whosoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And then here, by this we know, we are of the truth and will persuade our heart before him. Let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Again, by this we know, in verse 24 of chapter 3, He abides in us by the Spirit whom He gave us. The one that keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. Then in chapter 4, verse 13, By this we know, we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. And that's 
highlighted by if we love one another. God, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Then finally, in verse 2 of chapter 5, we love the children of God. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. There is a textual variant with the verb ginosko. The Texas Receptus uses the present active indicative, we continue to know, whereas the NA27 uses the future middle deponent indicative, we will know. For this discussion, I will follow the Texas Receptus. We know, just simply we know. It's the present tense. To continue to know that our truth lines up with God's truth because this truth has its source from God. The preposition is a genitive of source, pointing out the outworking of a truth is rooted with aletheia, the truth. The definite article points to a definite truth, specifically God's truth. Let's move to the next phrase. And we will assure our hearts in front of him. This phrase speaks of our face-to-face encounter before the Lord. The encounter is not the judgment of the unbeliever, the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, but rather the bema seat judgment of Christ, where Christ himself judges the Christian's works and those not performed in his name for his glory, according to the love principle, will be burned up. This is a judgment concerning rewards, not damnation. The conjunction chi and or indeed ties our hope and reliance upon his truth to our future confidence before the one who knows our heart. The future action is governed by the preposition eproestin, in front of or showing direction and location of action and is used to bring out more clearly the idea of the genitive case of the preposition atas of him. We will stand before a holy and just God and John aims to exhort us to righteous living in order to cut to our hearts the reality of our destiny. It is a heavenly destiny, but we have a new life here on earth. So our deeds here on earth must reflect the truth of God's word. And this is eternal life that we might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is the truth of John 17 verse 3. Look, as John moves ever so gracefully into the realm of the heart and the relationship of the heart to the indwelling Holy Spirit. The future verb, petho, the future active indicative, first person plural, to persuade, to assure, or have confidence in, expresses our assurance, our confidence in the heart. This confidence is future pointing to the future judgment seat of Christ, but might also speak of those times when we approach God in prayer. The definite article used with cardia, the heart, makes the object specific in that the heart of man is evil, but when transformed can make a person who knows the truth and abides in the truth 
grow in the truth to the point that one is convinced all the way from the mind down to the heart, the seed of the spiritual life, or more specifically, the soul or mind, as it is the fountain and seat of the thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, afflictions, purposes, and endeavors. Oh, what a statement this is. Verse 20, that if our heart condemns us, the construction hati ain has been translated as whenever, for if, and that if, because the thought continues from verse 19 and is an objective clause pointing out the result of the truth in our heart and the spirit that convicts. As is the normal case with the particle ain, the following verb is a subjunctive. In this case, katagenosko. That's a wonderful little word. Katagenosko, the present active subjunctive, to find fault with, to blame, to accuse or condemned. And you hear that compound, kata, uh, down or against, and uh, genosko, to know or understand. It is used in only three places in the New Testament. Here, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, and 1 John 3, 21. Vine says this, Peter's conduct in Galatians 2.11, being self-condemned as a result of an exercised and enlightened conscience and condemned in the sight of others. So, of self-condemnation due to an exercise of heart. That's what Vine says. This third-class condition is the condition of certainty. So, the spiritual lesson is that God's truth, His Word, and his indwelling presence in the heart will point out error and convict us of that error, moving us to change our ways, confess our sin, repent, and get right with God. Finally, notice this subject is placed at the end of the phrase and that John includes himself in the argument by using the possessive plural pronoun ego. The subject is the heart, cardia. And it is the heart that condemns. The fact of the legal case is known, specifically, that one is to love the brethren, and when that fact is known only in the mind and it has not reached the heart, then God has some work to do in the believer's life. The result in this situation is a transformed mind and a more mature believer because the Holy Spirit will convict the believer, resulting in a sincere interest in the fellow brethren and the truth. The next phrase, that God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. The battle in the heart is continuous and it is between man, his fleshly desire, his will, and God and his will. Who do you think will win in the end? The apodosis, the main clause, starts with the hate clause, conjunction, and and is often not translated. The adjective, mizon, greater, modifies the subject, theos, and serves to identify the greater influence in the heart. The genitive of cardia, with a definite article, is translated than the heart instead of the usual of or from, because the superlative is used. A 
measurement is made between the two. But it is as if only one subject, God, is in view. That is to say, what chance does our heart have against God? In the battle of the wills, who do you suppose will win? It is the indwelling spirit that convicts of sin, teaches us about Christ, but also enables us to find the truth. The verb properly serves to identify the subject, God, who knows all things. The knowledge of man and the knowledge of God are two very different things. For the Christian, knowledge is limited and mostly consumed with battling with the old self, which is characterized as self-seeking and evil always. Man is self-sufficient, self-confident, self-righteous, self-centered, and consumed with self-love. This condition results in self-righteousness, self-pity, and self-reliance. A born-again man is able to confess, repent, rely upon God, and reckon self-crucified with Christ. Man must yield to God and grow in the knowledge from a babe in Christ to a mature believer transformed to the knowledge of God. God's knowledge is true, infinite, and directed towards an end. God knows all things, present, active, and naked, third person singular. That is a statement, a general statement of fact. The present is a nomic present. That is, the present with the infinitive relative clause speaks of a general concept that God knows all things without time limits. It is as true today as it was in the past and in the future. So that with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the application of the Word of God, one's heart knows all things that a person needs to know in order to function as a Christian. This is the law of abiding in Christ in application. They did not have the whole of the New Testament. Verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. What a statement that is. John seeks to encourage them and point out their common relationship as he exhorts them using the adjective agapitos, beloved ones, in the vocative, the case of address. Is this not something? Speaking on the topic of love one for another, John uses the same word as a noun, a verb, a participle, and now the adjective to address them. The question is meant to cause them to think as he introduces the question with a conditional particle ain. If the heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence towards God. The subject is again the heart, the cardia. That is in us. And the verb is again the subjunctive of katagenosko, to condemn but is now modified with a negative particle may. This is the classic third-class condition where the if part, the protasis, and the then part, the apodasis, is clearly translated. So the authorized version translates, If our heart condemns us not, then 
we have confidence towards God. You see the if and the then is translated there. If our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence towards God. The subject of the phrase is perhasia, freedom of speaking or boldness from the compound pas, all or every, and rio, to pour out or to utter, and has the idea of confidence or assurance that we have, echo, have or hold, as we approach God. While there is a future expectation of our encounter with God face to face, there is also a present possession of confidence as we approach Him when our hearts are not condemned due to our treatment of the brethren. What a statement this is. When we approach God in prayer, we come pros towards or near God possessing confidence. The Christian has the capability as a born-again person to abide in Christ and in so doing, his or her behavior will reflect the love of God in deed and truth, resulting in doing the right thing and thus having confidence in our relationship with God. The human heart is described as proud, foolish, deceitful, rebellious, perverse, evil, wicked, callous, malicious, hardened, darkened, deluded, unrepentant, unbelieving, gone astray, devoted to idols, filled with schemes to do wrong, and far from God. But it is God who knows the heart, searches it, tests it, and He is the one that opens it, circumcises it, makes light shine on it, cleanses it, making it new, directing and influencing it, resulting in a regenerated heart that cries out for the living God, responding to Him, seeking after Him, trusting in Him, loving Him, praising, rejoicing, and singing to Him. The desire of the heart is then to have a new relationship with God, and the heart now desires to obey God's law, meditate on His word, speak the truth with a sincere heart, and truly love others. Let's move to the next verse. And whatever we might ask, we continue to receive from Him because we continue to keep His commandments. And completes the thought for this argument. The outworking of God's love is what is in view here. But since this is a handbook for Christian living, the logical order of this three-part argument lists keeping His commandments first. Confidence before God is reinforced by the fact that abiding in Him brings a continuous fellowship with Him, where we come before Him in thanksgiving and prayer and supplication all the day long. This idea is highlighted by this conjunction, and the third time the subjunctive and the third class condition is used. Notice the relative pronoun is the neuter singular of Haas, whatever, emphasizing the abstract nature of what might be asked for. The particle ain, the conditional particle, if, with the subjunctive of ato, the present active subjunctive, 
to ask or to beg or to call for, means the outcome is certain. Again, reinforcing the confidence that we possess in our hearts. That is to say, it is our relationship and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that moves us in our walk with God reflecting the abiding love relationship so that our relationship with fellow members of the church is a reflection of our relationship with God. Confidence that we have done right in knowing that God will forgive us our sin and provide those things that we currently possess that are in need by the brother. Those things that we have, we receive, lambano, a present active indicative, from him. The preposition para is the ablative of source, meaning everything we receive has its source from God. It should be noted that these physical things, the necessary possessions of everyday life, is but one aspect of a Christian's possessions. The other is the possession of the Holy Spirit, and hence God's word that we in turn give out freely, for we are children of God in word and deed, in deed and truth. The conjunction hati, because, provides the reason that receiving what we ask is linked to the commandments of God. The commands, itolan, an order or a command with the definite article means specific commandments. The plural, reflecting the royal commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Most translate his commandments as they are possessed of him. And as such, we are to attend to them carefully as the Greek of tero, the present active indicative, to attend to carefully. To take care of or keep conveys the continuous aspect of fellowship with him and each other. Move to the next phrase. And we continue to do pleasing things in his sight. The result of keeping God's commandments is that we please him just as a child pleases his or her parents by obedience. There is nothing more pleasing or agreeable for a parent than to have a child that is joyfully going about doing the things that he is told to do. Notice the object is placed at the head of the phrase and is the adjective artios with a definite article, pleasing or agreeable. The direction of this pleasure is defined in location by the compound, in opion, in the presence of, or before. It is as though our Lord is right there before us. In fact, He is closer than that. He indwells us and sees our heart. When we are abiding in Him, and Him in us, we yield to Him. We desire to please Him, which leads us to poeomen, to perform a pleasing act. Let's move to the next verse, verse 23. And this is His commandment. It is at this point that the chief commandment is pointed out, the importance of which is highlighted by the use of the conjunction and the demonstrative pronoun, kai ate. And this 
is the entola, the command of him. The next phrase, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. John has been speaking about the royal law. Thou shalt love your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. But now he turns around and tells us that God exhorts us to believe in his name. The conjunction used is the henna, that, introducing the defining clause in opposition. This clause spells out what the command of God is. The subjunctive, pistuo, the aorist active subjunctive, the to think to be true or to believe, to be persuaded of a thing, is used as a horatory subjunctive. Since there is no first person imperative, the first person plural subjunctive is used and the result is like the imperative and is usually translated, we should believe a statement of ethical behavior. To believe in the onama, the name of his son, means that we are to believe that Jesus Christ is three things. Number one, he is the son, not in the sense that he was born, but in the sense that the Greek used the word as having the same characteristics as the one that he came from, the Father. The second thing, he is Jesus. From the Hebrew, uh, Jehovah is salvation. He is the Savior. And number three, he is the Christos, the Christ, uh, the Anointed One. And that comes from the Hebrew Messiah, the Anointed of Israel, the one appointed to come in judgment and bring in the earthly messianic kingdom. The next phrase, and we should love one another just as he gave to us the command. The statement exhorting ethical behavior that we should believe in the son's name is extended to this phrase concerning our love one for another. The conjunction chi tightly links the two behaviors. To believe ought to result in love. The subjunctive agapeo, present active subjunctive, first person plural, to love, as before, is a horatory subjunctive, emphasizing an exhortation to love one another. The Greek, alas, one another, another of the same kind, uh, mutually one another. There must be a genuine mutual love between the brethren. How we treat one another is of utmost importance. And John says he received this command, this intola, and so he in turn gave didomai to us. The heiress speaks of a one-time event in the past. This is not a new commandment, but the heiress speaks of a past event that they received this message at some point in the past. This is the message that we are to pass down from generation to generation. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Moreover, that by this same kind of love we should love one another and have confidence in our walk before him. Verse 24. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. 
The third point of the outworking of God's love has to do with the daily walk of the believer and what is called in theology the security of the believer. The conjunction chi might better be translated by the emphatic now or indeed as some translate while other translations do not translate the conjunction at all. The idea of this conjunction is to tightly connect the love of God with abiding in Him. This connection is so tied to the child of God that the present participle, tereo, present active participle, nominative masculine singular with the definite article, to attend to carefully or keep, associates the child with his commandments as the participle speaks of one's continuous state of keeping his commandments. A person known as a keeper, as it is translated, the one that continues to attend to carefully. Notice in talas is plural and definite, and that the personal pronoun atas identifies whose commands they originate from. The controlling verb is placed at the end and contains the subject so as to emphasize the object, his commandments. The verb is present of minno. He continues to remain or he abides and it speaks of the mutual closeness and relationship of Christ to the believer as a preposition in defines the position we have in him. The distinction between the singular and the plural of the commands might be drawn from this little letter as follows. Number one, the singular points to a truth that has always been declared by God and that is to love your God with all your heart, which is now focused in this dispensation by the gospel of Christ and the belief in his son Jesus Christ who saves us and which demonstrates his love for us as he came in the flesh to die for us. The second point in this distinction between the plural and the singular of command, the singular points to the character of the love of God as it speaks not only of his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf, but that love of his creation, and in particular for mankind, must be extended to all mankind and the treatment of all men because he created man in his image. The third thing, for the plural, there is a progression as first the conditionals are used to identify if we keep his commandments there is certainty in the outcome, namely, that we know him. Chapter 2, verse 3. The plural speaks, in the fourth point, of the type of person we are as a new creation in Christ. The participle means we continue to abide in him and Him, he in us. The fifth point, the plural, speaks of the test by which one knows the love of God by how one loves God and keeps his commandments. The sixth point is finally the statement of fact of 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. 
For this is the love of God. It's a definition. That we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Let's move to the final phrase in verse 24. And by this we continue to know that He remains in us by the Spirit which He gave us. This phrase is intended to instill in us a confidence in our walk. Knowledge is linked to faith by the outworking of the Holy Spirit. A walk with God will build up one's faith because that is the principle that is at work here. Notice the progress of maturity in the law of maturity in Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Loving God will bring about great hardship in the believer's life, because those in the church who are not mature even those unsaved can be a great burden. When a problem appears in the church, there is a tendency to pick up and leave, to break fellowship and find another church. There is a time and a place to leave a church, but if the church is not teaching heresy, then everything should be done to reconcile parties in a dispute because God says this is the right thing to do and that it need not be a burden to fellowship in a church, and love the brethren. The conjunction chi introduces this statement of fact, or definition, as the NIV translates, and this is how we know that he loves us. And then the NIV puts this wonderful colon there. Definition. The placement of the preposition with the demonstrative pronoun, by this, in tola genoskomen, we might now know he abides in us. The present active verb from meno, abide or remain, means that he dwells in us right now and that his presence is in the mood of reality. The pronoun he points to the subject of this verb, namely God, and as with the whole of Scripture, God the Son. And now the doctrine of the Trinity is the truth that all three of the Godhead are seen as one, as the Holy Spirit indwells us. We know that He abides in us because it is the Holy Spirit that communicates this to us. The source of the knowledge is identified as ek, the preposition from, and most translate by, the pneuma, the Spirit, and it has the definite article there. How do we know this is not our Spirit? Because the definite article identifies a specific spirit and the context has identified the spirit as the one that reveals truth, convicting the heart and shall assure our hearts before him. 
The relative pronoun has, who, which, or that is usually translated whom, identifying the person that reveals the truth to us. The final verb is placed at the end of the clause and is it in the past tense of didomai, uh, he gave, the aorist active indicative, speaking of that one-time event in the past, that moment of our salvation, where God gifted us with his indwelling presence. The Holy Spirit, the surety, the helper, the one that sets us apart in word and deed in the Christian walk. This section starts with an ethical statement of the believer's walk in word and deed and ends with the comforting reminder that it is the Holy Spirit that has been given to every believer as a helper in this common walk in word and deed. Brethren, if the Apostle John is having problems in his church in his day, how much more? will we experience in our church in our day? How much more do we need this instruction today?